All right. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 19. I want to encourage you to please stick around. I'm excited for today and just a chance to spend time together as a church family following the service and our, our member meeting and enjoy a meal together. So I encourage you to stick around for that. We come to uh, the middle section here of Luke 19. And in my study this week, kept hearing this story over and over, so I'll just begin with it. But for you who knows that studied history, Herod the Great died in 4 BC. And when that happened, it became apparent that his son, Archelaus, or, or, or Archelaus, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, Archelaus, would take the throne and rule after him. But he couldn't take the throne all by himself. There was, there's only one man in the entire world who could crown him king, and that was the Emperor Caesar in Rome. But as you read in the history books, Archelaus wouldn't wait to be installed. He, he would begin, in some ways, to, to reign immediately after the death of his father. Even with his self-imposed reign, though, only the emperor could grant him the title king. So Archelaus finally made the trek to Rome, where he expected to be crowned as king in the temple of Palatine Apollo. Relatively easy process, he thought. But he had a rude awakening because he would find out that there was active opposition to his monarchy. He would discover when he entered Rome that even some of his own family would rival as applicants to the throne. But not only his own family, there were a delegation of 50 Jewish leaders who came from Jerusalem to seek an audience with Caesar, claiming that Archelaus was unfit for the throne. And during Passover, there had been some disturbance at the temple, and the soldiers of Archelaus had rashly slaughtered 3,000 worshipers. And, and the delegation from Jerusalem, backed by thousands of Jews who were then living in Rome, petitioned Caesar to liberate them from the authority of Archelaus. And the whole affair took a lot longer than he or anyone had expected. But we do read that Caesar eventually granted Archelaus the title of king. Not surprisingly, when Archelaus returned home to Judea, what do you think he did? He executed swift punishment against every man who had rebelled against his rule, proving that he was really unfit to serve. Expectations are an interesting thing. We can expect certain things to happen or certain things not to happen. It's really a fascinating thing to, to think through in our life. I wonder what expectations you have for your week. Do you expect to have a relatively stress-free week? Or do you expect to have a very busy, hectic seven days? Do you expect that that big project you've been working on will be completed or the paper you've been writing for class will be done? Do you expect to go to the doctor and get a clean bell of health or do you expect to go there and hear the worst? Expectations can either charge us up or slow us down. Expectations can either make us encouraged or bring us lower, discouraged. What are your expectations for this week? for this month, for the rest of your life. Archelaus had a set of expectations. When his dad Herod the Great died, he expected to easily assume the throne with ease and with strong support. And when Jesus is on the cusp of Jerusalem, as we will see here in Luke 19, his followers expected him to set up his kingdom and to rule and the wicked rulers would be wiped away. Archelaus and Jesus' followers had their expectations evaluated by reality, and they needed to be adjusted. You know, the only person in the universe that has proper expectations is God. He is never surprised, and he's never disappointed. God never has misplaced expectations. That's a phenomenal thought, isn't it? God always is thinking correctly. He is never let down. God takes no risks. We take risks all the time. He never does because he knows the end. And the reason why I share this story of Archelaus from history is because I believe it sets the stage for this parable that Jesus is about to share in, in Luke 19 in the, in the history lesson 
didn't happen much, much longer right after Jesus was born. So for the, the listeners, as Jesus is speaking, it's, it's current. It's 30 years old. It's not very long. They understand this. They, their minds would race back to this. So perhaps that's why Jesus shares this parable. We don't know. But I believe it's to prepare his disciples to have an adjusted expectation so that they can serve him faithfully. So here's the main idea. If you write down anything or, or make note of it, this is the main idea. Christians live in the kingdom of God, but not fully. So as faithful servants, we work for the king while we wait for his return. And I've got three points that I want to cover here. The king leaves, the servant works, and the king returns. So if you haven't already, turn to Luke chapter 19. We're going to look at verses 11 through 27. And you'll be helped by having a Bible open for this time. There's Bibles there in your seats if you don't have one. But Luke chapter 19 Starting at verse 11, I'm going to read through this entire section here, 11 through 27. So follow with me as I read. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near, near to Jerusalem. And because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went to a far country to receive from hell himself a kingdom and then returned. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after them, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities." And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here's your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you're a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine... Who do not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. All right, let's dive in here. First point the king leaves. As I read these first few verses, it really does sound like the story of Archelaus, right? He proceeds to tell a parable there about a nobleman going to a far country to receive himself a kingdom. And, and, and I believe that what Jesus is saying here, this, this nobleman traveled to a far country, I believe it's referring to the ascension of Jesus, expecting to receive a kingdom and then return. But before he leaves, he says they find citizens that hated him so much that they sent a delegation to prevent his coronation. But Jesus is really talking about himself here. Think about the moments leading up to his crucifixion. They're angry at Jesus. Next week, Lord willing, we'll look at this entry where they're happy, but that doesn't last very long. It turns very much to anger, and they want him dead. They don't want him to reign over them. And Jesus is not comparing himself to, to wicked Archelaus, but only to familiar circumstances of his kingship. He would travel to a far country to get it, passing through death in the empty grave before being crowned in the courts of heaven and then returning to his people. There are many parallels here with the kingship of Christ, but the most important detail that we need to zero in on is the delay of his return. That's what he's wanting to refine in their expectations here. And Luke again gives us the details for the need of this parable. Do you see it in verse 11? Because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was appear immediately. He's, he's, under, he's exposing for us why this is necessary, this parable. They expect that Jesus is going right now to become crowned king. And the closer Jesus draws to Jerusalem, and the more excitement that is generated by the crowds that are following him. And the great, greater sense of expectation that's growing. This is it. You know, this is what they've been hoping for. This is why they've been with him these three years. They can just feel it, the tension rising. This is it. Jesus is going to become king. And he's here to, to correct their expectations. 
And, and this section presents a dual truth about Jesus and the kingdom. Verses 28 through 48 in, in chapter 19, which we will look at next week, speaks of the king who has come, and our passage this morning in verses 11 through 27 tells us that it's not yet time for the kingdom to come in its final form. Both are true. Jesus is not going up to the city to claim the throne. Rather, he's going away, but will return in kingly power. And he's wanting his people to understand that there will be a time where he won't be with them. There'll be a time when Jesus is away before he returns as king and the kingdom comes in its fullness. And yet we can probably understand the confusion that they would have, can't we? The kingdom had come. He had said that over and over. And yet it had not come in its fullness of its final glory. Jesus still needed to die on the cross. You need to remember, lock it away in your mind, first the cross, then the crown. Suffering, then glory. And if we're honest this morning, we don't like that process. Nope, don't want that. Didn't want it for him, definitely don't want it for us. We want resolve, we want progress, we don't want setbacks, we don't want things to slow down. But that isn't God's program for us. Suffering, then glory. So whether it's your family, or your career, or the church, suffering, then glory. And time is a great revealer. It reveals many things for us. So don't rush it. And the nobleman here in this parable he represents Jesus. The servants represent his disciples. The, the citizens that don't want him represent Herod and the Pharisees. And, and, and if you remember, Jesus just spelled out in the last story that we looked at a couple weeks ago in Zacchaeus that his business is to seek and save the lost. And so his disciples are to be engaging with his business in whatever setting they find themselves and whatever resources that they have. And it's a parable and the simple point is to urge those who are genuine disciples to faithfully maximize their, their master's assets as they wait for his return. So, that's the first point. Christians live in the kingdom of God, but not fully, so as faithful servants, we work for the king while we wait for his return. So the king leaves. Second, the servant works. Okay, the nobleman leaves, <clears throat> and he's entrusting ten minas to ten servants. A mina was an equivalent of about $20 today, but in their time it would have been of three months' wages. So it was, it was a significant sum that he leaves each one. Each servant received one mina, and their charge while he was gone was to engage in business until I come. Do you see that in verse 13? Underline that if, you, if it's your Bible. If it's not your Bible, don't underline it. Make note of it. Engage in business until I come, because this will make sense here as we walk through it. The servants were called to be occupied with their master's business, putting his money to work in order to turn a good profit. And so how did it go? He comes back, right? Look at verse 15. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you've been faithful and very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second comes also and has five minas after the one. So these ten money managers represent the servants of Christ, our true king. And as we wait for his royal return for us, we're called to carry out the spiritual business of his kingdom. But what does the money represent for us? How do we think about this for us? You might be thinking that this parable here in Luke 19 is the same as Matthew's parable in Matthew 25 of the talents. But I don't believe it is. I don't believe they're the same. Matthew's parable does talk about a man who went on a long journey and gave his servants money to manage in his absence. But in that parable, each servant received different amounts of money. Talents, dependent upon their own ability, he says. And so I would say in the parable of Matthew, it teaches us that we all have different amounts of, of talent or resources and, and, and God gives us in service for the Lord. But this parable is, is a little bit different. 
It is the parable of ten minas or the parable of pounds. In this parable, each servant receives the same amount. One mina each. So it's, it's true that we all have different gifts, some more than others, but that's not the point of this parable. So don't confuse the two of them. This parable is about faithfulness, not giftedness. Log that away. It's this parable about faithfulness, not giftedness. Every Christian has the same responsibility to serve God and to serve the kingdom until the king returns. And the minas that are given, well, friends, that's the gospel. That's the good news. We all receive the same gospel, the same amount. And Jesus wants us to put that gospel to work until he comes back. And what's the gospel? The gospel is the good news of God's grace towards sinners. It's the message of salvation through the death and the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. It's the offer of life and forgiveness through the cross and the empty tomb. And God has entrusted that to us, as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2.4. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. We have all been entrusted with the gospel to please God and to make it grow in our world. So every single one of us, if you count yourself a Christian, no matter our gifts or our abilities or our good looks or our fame, we all have the good news of Jesus Christ and the incredible effect that it's had on our lives. And we all have the same command. Right? I told you to underline it. What's the command? What's the command? I'm going to have a little interaction. What is it? Engage in business until I come. That command is for the parable, but it's for us. So we must invest the investment Christ made in us, and we're to multiply the spiritual capital. Invest the gospel in all of our lives. And get this. This I've been excited to preach, okay? Because this is amazing right here. Get this. The gospel grows by its inherent power. Did you catch it in the parable? Look again at verse 16. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made made ten minas more. And the the second, right? Your mina, your mina has made five minas. Do, Do you see it? When the servants were asked what they had done with what they received, they make it sound as if the money itself had grown by all of itself. It's in its power, it's itself, the gospel. Your mina has made 10 minas. The servant doesn't take credit for it. He doesn't say, "I, I was really smart. I was quite amazing with that mina, and I did all this work. No, he points to what the truth is. Your mina brought 10 minas. It's magnificent. He got a thousand percent return. Do any of you invest? None of you do. Boy, it's going to be rough when you retire. Do any of you invest? I do. Would you sign up for a money manager that said, I can get you a thousand percent return? That's an amazing, amazing response. This is what the gospel does. I mean, it's crazy. The gospel gets that kind of return. And he credits the prophet to what the master had given them. It was the mina, that mina, that gave increase. Friends, do you understand how powerful the gospel is? Or you've been walking around, carrying this gospel, and thinking too small of it. Just sticking it in your back pocket. You don't even think of it. You're just doing the next thing in life. And you forget about it. Is it possible that we hold the greatest thing in the world, the most powerful thing, and we've been discounting its effect on the world? It was the mina that made the increase. And so it is with the gospel, friends. God is telling us to put the gospel to work. 
We are to put the gospel to work because the gospel has the power of God until salvation. Paul says in Romans, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power, the dynamite of God for salvation. To everyone who believes, the Jew first and also to the Greek, the gospel makes the kingdom grow. It's not us. It's not our power. It's not our brilliance. It's not our programs. It's not our small group. It's not our dinners with friends. It's not how wonderful you think you are. It's the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ. That's where the power lies. And it's astonishing what the gospel can do when we think about it. The gospel delivers people from death. The gospel turns enemies into friends. The gospel wipes out sin and brings righteousness. The gospel builds up the church so that the forces of hell cannot and will not prevail against it. The gospel sends missionaries into the world with love and grace. The gospel fixes broken marriages. The gospel changes crooked tongues. The gospel brings fruit when there's dry ground. The gospel does this. And all we have to do, friends, is unleash it. Are anyone else excited? Y'all watch football games get really excited, but this, you kind of... You know, I thought of football and unleashing it, you know? When the game starts and the team's ready to go, the coach is holding them back before he holds them in the field, and it's like letting them go. It's unleashing it, the power of what's going to happen. And we hold the greatest gift, and all we need to do is unleash it. We need to preach the word. And we were here as a church family because of the gospel. You're here, friends, as fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord, things you wouldn't have anything in common because of this same gospel. And our charge this morning is put the gospel to good use, to unleash it. Disciples are not charged with hiding what has been entrusted in them. They're to multiply it by sharing it. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And friend, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, every aspect of your life is an opportunity given for the purpose of investment. Those are opportunities to put the gospel to work. The place where you live, the family that God's given you, the job where you work, your school and your classmates, your weekends, your abilities, the education that you've received, your money, your good health, your bad health, your interactions with people who do not believe in Jesus, even your suffering is an opportunity for God to get glory and for you to steward. And the point here is faithfulness, not giftedness. We are not free as Christians to use those things any willy-nilly way for our own purpose or even to neglect those opportunities altogether. You and I will give an answer for all the opportunities that God has given us. And I'm afraid that too many Christians are approaching life like the third servant, as we'll see, just dismissing those opportunities or plain missing them or foolishly putting them to use, thinking that the king isn't really coming back or that he doesn't really care. He does care, and he is coming back. Are we just living our lives with no thought of the future evaluation of our Lord and that he'll give us? Are we just living like men and women who know that we're indebted, indebted to God and, and know that we'll give an account one day and yet we're just going to ignore him? I realize that sometimes in life, in the midst of what's going on in your life, it may not seem like he's coming back. And often our names as Christians are often thrown out or slandered or mocked People think evil of us. And we walk through lots of tribulations and suffering. Friends, I want to remind you again, our peace doesn't dwell in this world, but in the world to come. And we strive to live one day at a time. But one day, this life will be done, and we will stand before the one who created us, the one who sustains us. And as Christians relying solely upon Christ's work for salvation, we will stand before our creator 
and we will receive wages that far exceed anything that we have ever dreamt of doing for Christ during our short life. Our benefits and glory will far outweigh our service to him on this earth. And we will stand before the holy, righteous one and find to our amazement that everything we've done for our master and how it will be rewarded. All of our hard relationships that we've endured to give someone hope beyond this life, all of the work that we did, your job, day in and day, day out, faithfully working to support your family and to give to the Lord and to give to ministry, all of those awkward conversations that we embrace to give someone else the gospel, all of those opportunities will be paid back a hundredfold. And we will feel unworthy in that day. Because we will see God in all of his glory. And we will truly feel small and unworthy. And God will say, well done, good servant. And it will humble us. Because all that we will reflect on will pale in comparison of all that he's given us. And so friends, I want to encourage you, keep pressing on. Keep following Jesus. Paul says in Romans 8, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And Paul is telling us in that verse to hold up our problems, to hold up our sufferings in this world, and then to hold them next to glory. And glory wins. All day, every day, and twice on Sunday, glory wins. It always wins. All of our pains, all of our struggles, all of this frustrations and misplaced expectations in life, all of them are not worth comparing with the glory that is coming. And that glory that is coming, man, it's going to be beautiful. It's going to be awe-inspiring. It will produce joy and thankfulness, and it will have no end. And that, when that glory is revealed to us, all of the toil, all of the pain, all of the 50, 60, 70 years of suffering this earth will be as nothing when we see our Savior face to face. Our sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory to be revealed to us. And so keep pressing on. Keep following Jesus. This parable teaches us that when the king returns, he will praise faithful servants and reward us in a way that is in in likeness and in response to our service. He says the man who's who's made ten minas received ten times the reward. And the man who, who made five and so on, five times the reward. The entrance into heaven is all the same. It's all, it's all the ground is level at the foot of the cross. We all come the same way. But in that kingdom, there will be reward upon reward for the faithful servants of God who, and more responsibility for them who have been faithful with little. And so friends, what have, you, what have you been doing with what you've been given? What we do with our, our time and our money, what we do with the gospel, it has eternal significance. So don't get caught up with just earthly ambitions when God has greater glories in store. Hudson Taylor was right when he said, a little thing is just a little thing, but faithfulness in a little thing is a great thing. And the truth of that statement will be confirmed in glory when all the little things people do with the gospel are truly seen as great things in light of his glory. Christians live in the kingdom of God, but not fully. So as faithful servants, we work for the king while we wait for his return. We've seen the king leaving, the servants working, and last, the king returns. There were ten servants, as he said at the beginning of the parable, but Jesus only needs three to make his point. The first two check out, faithfully using the mina, but then there was one more. Look at verse 20. Then another came saying, Lord, here's your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you're a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, you reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. 
you knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. What this last servant did, or better yet, what he failed to do is really shocking. In complete defiance of the instructions, he takes what he was given and wrapped it up in a handkerchief and hid it away. This man was so afraid of what he might lose that he failed to work for what he would gain. And many do the same thing today with the gifts that God gives. Rather than putting the gospel to use, people are afraid to talk about God, afraid of what others might think of them, afraid that they can't speak the same way that the preacher does, afraid that they might lose something in their careers or in their neighborhoods if they share. And so they hide the gospel in their handkerchief hoping that God won't notice. But friends, God knows, and he sees when we're pridefully fearful. Holding back from the clear call of God is not humility, it's pride. It's arrogance and rebellion and worldly fear. And when it gave time for this servant to give an account, He decides to defend himself and insult his master. He thought it was best to push responsibility off himself and to blame the nobleman. He says, I I was afraid of you because you're a severe man. He's trying to blame his master. It wasn't his fault that he's afraid. It, it, It was his master's fault for making him afraid. And the servant appears to have feared that he would get no return for all of his work. All the profit would have been taken by the master. So he sat on the mina doing nothing. And and this sorry Christian slanders God in his heart and hoards what he has received from Christ. And he carefully folds it in cloth and stores it away. And he thinks, "I, I won't be active. But at least I can be conservative. I can preserve the Christian tradition. I can attend church when it works out well and send my kids to Sunday school. I can take the Christian point of view and I can wrap my religion in my handkerchief and conserve it, but I'm not going to engage with people. I'm not going to engage with sinners. I won't share, I won't preach, I won't serve. This servant came with excuses rather than profit. He hid the mina. And he did it because he was afraid of the nobleman. The servant had hard thoughts toward his Lord. And in his fear, he thought his excuse might be enough to justify his failure to what the the nobleman had given him to do. Fear of him, fear of doing wrong, paralyzes him. And his beliefs about his master motivates his actions and his response. Spurgeon said, nothing twists and deforms the soul more than a low or unworthy conception of God. How you view God matters. This one thinks wrong thoughts about his master, and his wrong thoughts affects his actions. God expects us to use our theology, what we think about him, to motivate our actions. And we should act on what we know about God. I'm going to ask an easy question. Maybe you can get this one. How do we learn about God? That was a whole lot of blah, blah, blah. God's Word. So, friends, if you're not in God's Word, you won't learn about God. You won't get to know Him. Your views of Him, if your views of Him is the media, Cable news, friends, they're not telling you the truth. We ought to be in God's word. This man did not know God. 
He thought he did. He thought he knew the nobleman. In fact, he said he did, really. There are those today who are Jesus' apparent friends, but really ignore him. They deny his lordship over them. They deny his rightful reign over them. They want all of the benefits of being Jesus' friend, but when the rubber meets the road, they really want nothing of him. They just want his benefits. And every single one of us as believers have been given the same gospel to deposit and to invest. And regardless of our abilities, if we invest it, we will receive rewards far beyond reason or measure. We will reign with Christ. We will be his confidence. We will be his co-workers in eternal enterprises. For some, maybe even seated here or watching online, you've served faithfully for a while. You, you invested the gospel for a time, but then life changed. Kids grew, became preoccupied with other things, and now you've taken the gospel and you've hit it. And you think, I, I did serve. I, I did it for years, but now I'm going to rest. I'm going to let someone else do it. I served in children's church for years, giving the gospel, but, but now it's someone else. It's their time, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull back. Uh, I used to lead a small group. I used to host it, but not anymore. I'm not going to do that anymore. I used to share the gospel with my coworkers, but now I've moved up the chain, and, and it would just become awkward if I, if I told someone under me the gospel, so I'm just not going to do that. And they hide it. Friends, there is no retirement from gospel work on earth. You will rest one day, but not here, not now. We need to endure. We need to press on until Jesus takes us home. Some of you already checked out. You're like the people, I don't mean this in a mean way, that when the plane lands, you're first to get up and get your bags. Friends, the plane hasn't landed yet. We have work to do. If he's not here to get us, what should we do? If Jesus isn't here yet, and you've realized this morning, I've, I've really hidden my mina. And now Pastor Jeff says we shouldn't, based upon what the scripture says, do not hide it. So what should you do? Yeah, I want you to sit in the uncomfortable silence for a minute. You know, there's opportunities here, but I'm not even so worried about opportunities here. You have opportunities right where you're at. We have opportunities to, to really allow the gospel to work here. I had the privilege last week serving in Children's Church and unfolding the gospel to little kids Man, that gets me up. But you have opportunities right when you go home. With your spouse, with your kids, with your neighbors. You have opportunities this week with your coworkers. Kids with your classmates. Man, I remember being in high school. It's rough. You have opportunities. Keep pressing on. Keep following Jesus. Keep investing the gospel. Don't hide your mina. This is an opportunity. This is a, a fresh awareness that God has brought to us this morning. How will we respond? Well, I need to finish. Jesus ends here in verse 27. But as for these enemies of mine who do not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. 
those in verse 27 are denying the king openly. But the wicked servant in verse 22 is denying the king just the same, but he's just doing it by hiding. He has not only deceived himself, but he is seeking to deceive others by his inaction. And in Jesus going to Jerusalem, he would find both types of people. Both types of people who were actively denying him or passively denying him. And both would be judged. Unresponsiveness to known truth is wicked and it will be judged. So friends, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you don't count yourself that, you have been given truth, you've been given truth this morning, and your denial of it, your rejection of truth, will bring judgment into your life on that last day. You will not stand before God on that day and have a good excuse. He knows all the excuses. And he knows you all the way deep down. And he will not accept anything other than total acceptance of him who is the truth for all life. Friend, there is no good reason to rebel against God. Can you think of a good reason to rebel against a God who loves you? Who has gave his life to save you? To redeem you? I can't think of a good reason. Rebellion only ends in destruction. And this parable depicts how eternal ruin awaits you if you continue to reject Jesus as king. Jesus' words here are hard in verse 27. They're hard words. And it's in response to their full, outright rejection of him. You need to understand, friend, that it's simply impossible to describe final judgment pleasantly or attractively. It cannot be done. It is intended to be awful, to scare you even, to offend you, so that it will wake you up and get your attention. Are you rejecting Jesus' rule over your life? Are you believing that your rejection of Jesus will result in good things for you in eternity? It won't. Friend, turn from your sin of unbelief this morning and turn and trust Jesus Christ. He has patiently waited. He's enduring with you. Turn to him in faith. Confess your rejection of him and repent. God is faithful and he hears your prayers. And friends, if you have more questions, I would love, absolutely love to talk with you after the service. You can come find me or Pastor Chris or any one of the elders. We would love to speak with you. We also need to notice here that not all of God's enemies are clearly and demonstratively noticeable. We need to recognize not all of God's enemies are on the outside. There are some enemies on the inside. There are enemies of Christ within the ranks of the church who even have church membership who have fooled the leaders that they are saved but they've never tasted of the gospel. Friend, which, which servant are you? Which servant describes you this morning? I'll be honest, as I studied the passage this morning, or this week, I began to feel guilty of my own failures. I began to have memories of, of times, opportunities that I had, and I failed. And those memories roll in my mind, and my heart wants to rest in shame and in grief over the chances that I had to be faithful, and I chose selfishly instead for me. But then I had to remind myself of the gospel. Already yet the Holy Spirit reminded me of the gospel. To remind myself of the very gift that I've been given and I had to give to others.
But what the gospel it tells me that my acceptance before God is not based upon how I perform. It's not based upon how well I do. But on Jesus and what he has done for me. And if you land this morning and all of that with guilt and shame for all of the missed opportunities and you forget the gospel, friend, you're choosing to hide your mina in that moment for yourself. Believing that God is an unjust God and that he's harsh and unloving. Can I encourage you to repent of your wrong view of God and rest in the gospel? Remind yourself again afresh and new of the good news that God saved you, not because how, how faithful you were and how great you were at sharing the gospel. It wasn't because of anything you've done. Because of what Christ has done. And this is why the gospel should not only be preached to unbelievers, but to believers as well. You do notice that in the epistles, Paul continues to remind churches of the gospel. So it's not just for entrance into heaven. It's for all of life. So that's why I want to continue to encourage the gospel should be shared every time we hold a class on this campus, whether it's in the preschool building or the teens and youth group or equipping for life class, the gospel brings life and it should never be hidden away. And if you walk away from our time gathered together that you just need to try harder or be a better Christian all on your own, friends, we've failed you then. We've failed to preach the Bible in all of its fullness and what Christ has done for us. We're forgetting the good news and we've replaced it with something that will never bring fruit. The gospel is what gives us encouragement in this work. Well, I wonder if your expectations of your week have been adjusted in the last 40 minutes. Perhaps some of you expected this week that would go as normal, but now based upon this passage, what should change in your life? The disciples following Jesus expected that when they turned the corner, things were going to get really good. That Jesus was going to be crowned king. The, the end was in sight. The coronation would, would come. But their expectations needed to be adjusted. Look at verse 28. I'm not going to land there long, but just look at it. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. I want you to notice that. that that verse, with that verse, the section that we've been in for a number of weeks concludes. If you remember, I've said this multiple times in Luke 9:51, it says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. That began this journey to Jerusalem in Luke 9:51. And now the section ends because he enters Jerusalem. And so Luke, in this one section, covered all the journey, and now we Lord willing, get to see the entrance into Jerusalem next week. And behind Jesus and the Twelve is Galilee and its synagogues and its discussions and its sermons and open country and its seaside audiences and the desperately poor and the seriously ill who pressed upon him on the Sabbath sunset. And, and now they have reached Jerusalem, which is before him with its temple and its chief priests and its elders and with Pontius Pilate who comes on major feast days from his permanent quarters in Caesarea with ample military support in case of national fervor and religious uh, excitement that might threaten the Roman peace. And Jesus heads toward the cross. The time is over for his ministry with those seeking a healing, those seeking a sermon. And Jesus' eyes are firmly set on death. Spurgeon said, I have another quote from Spurgeon. What a beautiful spectacle to see the Lord Jesus marching in front and his followers eagerly following on behind. They were going up to Jerusalem where he would receive some honor but also where he would be betrayed into the hands of cruel men and put to shameful death. But he went on ahead of them 
as the shepherd goes before the sheep, not driving but leading. As the captain goes before his soldiers, is taking the post of danger, so our Lord went on before them. It was far better that he should go first than that they should, for the disciple is never more out of place than when he outruns his master. Rest assured that, when, that in whatever way of suffering we have to go in consequence of, of our being a child of man, and especially in consequence of your being a child of God, we will find that Christ has gone that way ahead of us. Friends, our king will return one day. And when it's the right time, he will ask us for an accounting of our lives. Were you faithful for what he gave you? And if you've not been faithful, friend, realize afresh this morning that our Lord has gone before us. He has not left you. He's not pushing you from behind. He has led the way. And so keep following Jesus. Let's pray. Father, you are a good and wise God by bringing this passage before our eyes and our ears this morning. God, may you prick our hearts to respond not out of duty, but out of love for you. Holy Spirit, may we... You help us see ourselves somewhere in this passage and make decisions accordingly for your honor and for your glory. May we not be ashamed of this glorious gospel, but may we be eager preachers of your word this week. May we all be found faithful, good servants of you. And we pray this all in Christ's persevering and faithful name. Amen.